I'm Josh Israel, physician and a medical director at Allidade, and welcome to the ACO Show. I'm here with Dr. Darren Anderson, who's a primary care physician with a couple of different titles. And let's start with the director of the Weizmann Institute. Can you tell us about that organization? Yeah, Josh, thank you. And thank you for having me on the show today. So uh, I am the director of Weizmann. Weizmann Institute is a research and education center uh, that we created as part of a large federally qualified health center located in Connecticut. And really the purpose of the institute uh, was uh, to create an infrastructure and a research team that was really focusing specifically on the needs of medically underserved populations uh, in Connecticut and increasingly around the country. And uh, we have a team of, uh, of researchers conducting primary research and collaborative research. And we also have uh, a large and growing infrastructure that includes, you know, video conferencing and online learning platforms that allows us to engage with other practices around the country that are doing uh, similar work to what we're doing. And you're also the vice president and chief quality officer of Community Health Center Incorporated. Uh, what is that and how is it related to the Weizmann Institute, if at all? Yeah, so the Weizmann Institute is uh, is part of the Community Health Center. It's a subsidiary. And uh, really, I think the, the work of the Institute feeds the health center and the work of the health center in many ways feeds what we're doing at the Weizmann Institute. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of really complementarity uh, between the two uh, parts of the organization. And then lastly, as far as introductions, uh, can you tell me about Project ECHO and how that relates to the work you do? Sure. So most people will probably have heard of Project ECHO uh, as uh, a large uh, platform and uh, process that was created at, uh, out of the University of New Mexico as a way of connecting primary care providers and specialists and helping to train them uh, in uh, areas that they might otherwise not be comfortable with in terms of, uh, for example, treating hepatitis C, uh, or substance abuse, things like that. And uh, we've, uh, the Weizmann Institute, created our own uh, version of Project ECHO. We're a certified replication site, uh, and we deliver uh, in a variety of different topics Project ECHO sessions that are focused uh, specifically and uh, on uh, the needs of uh, other practices like our own uh, in the safety net. So are these Project ECHO uh, seminars intended primarily for doctors who work at community health centers or freestanding or university-affiliated PCPs as well. So the nice thing about Project Echo is the infrastructure allows you to connect uh, anybody anywhere. Uh, and so uh, many of our Echo sessions uh, are uh, run from the Weizmann Institute and we utilize our own uh, internal staff uh, from the health center. Uh, but in other cases, depending on the topic, we will connect with uh, other specialists and providers uh, from other uh, universities or other uh, you know, hospital systems and such. So it really creates a platform that allows you to make what we like to describe as makes geography irrelevant. Uh, you can connect people with information to people who need that information uh, across large distances. And so it's not uncommon for a, a Weizmann Project Echo Session to have participants uh, from uh, any number of states across the country uh, and to have specialists who may be located around a common table uh, or may be located in, in different states or locations as well. And with the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic that we're now all uh wrestling with, uh, that type of uh, platform has really been very uh, helpful for us in uh, creating the ability to rapidly communicate and connect people across distances that need to, uh, that need to uh, share information, talk about cases, and address this, uh, this great challenge. Yeah, before this current crisis, what were your most sought-after types of uh, curriculum? So the most uh, popular echo session by far was the one that was focused on uh, pain. 
managing uh, chronic pain in particular in primary care. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, we had one that helped to train and upskill frontline primary care providers to uh, provide medication-assisted treatment in primary care. Uh, so I think those two together uh, were uh, the ones that we were delivering uh, most commonly. And uh, in some cases, we would deliver two sessions to uh, clinics for different time zones and such, uh, but with the opioid epidemic uh, and all of the repercussions that we feel, particularly in the safety net, uh, those were uh, extremely uh, important and in demand. And with the coronavirus, we are obviously all just trying to keep up with the latest. Uh, what have you found are some of the, the common themes that people want guidance on? You know, it's interesting. We started, you know, within a week or so of the pandemic really starting to affect the U.S., uh, we launched a uh, coronavirus project echo session on a Wednesday afternoon uh, and invited pretty much anybody uh, across the country to join. A typical echo session, they have 30 or 50 participants. This session drew over 1,200 participants. So we had to adjust our format a little bit uh, to accommodate that number. So the, tip, the typical interactivity uh, of Project Echo uh, features conversations back and forth with participants. And in this case, we uh, were able to utilize some of the capabilities of our video conference platform to still exchange questions and cases, but we did that uh, using a chat function. And we were interested to see that the questions that we were receiving, uh, we, I think we got over 85 questions in a one-hour period, uh, were not so much about uh, clinical issues, like I have a patient and how should I manage this particular symptom or this particular uh, issue. The, the questions seem to focus more on operational questions, things like, you know, what's the best way to implement, you know, my triage protocol or, uh, you know, how can we rapidly uh, implement a telehealth strategy? Uh, and uh, actually, we're doing a specific session this week uh, on uh, rapid scaling of a telehealth platform to help our practices that are transitioning much or much of their operation, uh, much of their patient uh, uh, visits to a virtual uh, type of a platform. Yes, at Allidade, we've been trying to support our practices with that transition. Um, let's talk a little bit about the project you were on, ConfirmMed, and I'd love to hear how that informed your attempting to, to do this transition into, into telehealth. Yeah, ConfirmMed really grew out of uh, the challenges in safety net practices like ours with getting access to specialty care. Uh, we started off really trying to solve the problem that the vast majority of specialists in our state uh, limit access to patients with Medicaid or the uninsured. And so uh, we were looking for uh, some solution that would help improve access. And if you talk to any primary care provider, you know, they will tell you that a significant percentage of the referrals that we request really are about asking for a specific, uh, for an answer to a question or for some guidance about a particular medicine or a lab. Uh, and so we, at the Weizmann Institute, we led actually a randomized controlled trial that tested the safety and efficacy of what's come to be known as an e-consult, namely allowing the primary care providers to submit a consult question with information from the electronic health record to a specialist virtually uh, in with a rapid turnaround, a day or two at the most, uh, allowing them to respond back with their thoughts about the case. And the initial results uh, that we published in the Annals of Family Medicine showed that a substantial majority of the referrals that we were sending electronically could be resolved electronically. We went on to show with subsequent studies that that also had significant economic consequences. In keeping more patients in primary care, uh, we were reducing uh, the cost. Uh, much of that cost was in the specialty visits and the follow-up visits, tests and procedures that may or may not have been necessary 
Uh, and so I like to describe it as we started off trying to solve an access problem and ended up finding a solution, at least in part, for ways to reduce cost in primary care. And that's become really important now as more and more of our practices are taking advantage of uh, value-based uh, reimbursement opportunities, shared savings, uh, and such. And so, you know, an e-consult platform uh, is turning out to be a crucial tool to use in those types of scenarios where you want to keep as many patients as you can in primary care uh, and refer out only those that are necessary. Yeah, that's a really nice twofer, that getting patients access that they might not have otherwise been able to get, uh, and also making sure those patients stay in the care of their PCP when it's appropriate. Yeah, I think the nice thing about it is that, you know, you're, uh, really what I describe it as doing is giving your primary care provider access to a network of specialists to confer with about cases. Uh, and we chose the name ConferMed you know, to, to reflect our philosophy that you should confer with a specialist before you refer the patient face-to-face. And it's surprising how much information and how much assistance the PCP can get through those types of interactions that in many cases really obviate the need for sending people to travel to the specialty center, to the hospital, or wherever uh, that specialty care might be provided. And you know, today now with um, fewer and fewer people uh, looking for opportunities to travel into the medical system, that is becoming even more important. How does ConferMed get paid for? How does a specialist get reimbursed for doing those consults? So with Confirmed, we have a con- we contract with all of our specialists. They work for us uh, on a per consult basis uh, and we negotiate a rate uh, and we reimburse them directly for each consult that they do. Uh, and we in turn as Confirmed get reimbursed in a variety of ways. And this is the case where we've also had to be very flexible in our approach because different states uh, reimburse for different types of activities, different payers as well. Uh, so we're able at ConferMed to uh, submit claims directly through a claim submission process and get reimbursed. Uh, but we also uh, have the ability to uh, to invoice and to work directly with uh, with an ACO or an IPA. Um, and in some, in some cases, uh, we're exploring opportunities to get reimbursed directly through Medicaid. Uh, we have some states where there are no opportunities to get reimbursed, and in those cases, we, in, in certain circumstances, have grants that are funding us uh, to uh, to get make these services available to underserved populations. So right now, if I were a federally qualified health center or a rural health center, and I wanted to use ConferMed, how would I engage with it? So our website, ConferMed.com, uh, has uh, a... Uh, simple place where you can enter information and uh, we will uh, immediately get back to you. And uh, we do our own uh, in-house analysis of the payment environment in that particular state, the uh, state licensure laws, which also have some impact on this process. There are some states that view a peer-to-peer e-consult as a type of service that requires in-state licensure and there are other states that don't. So there's a fair amount of state-by-state analysis that we have to do, but we've largely done that across the country. And so uh, anyone interested in working with us, simply let us know their their name and their practice and uh, where they're located. And uh, we will be creative in finding the best way to get them up on the system. And since the coronavirus uh, pandemic has hit, uh, we've focused even more of our energies on making that process as quick and easy as possible. And we're launching something we call Quick Start. It basically is a do-it-yourself uh, launch of our platform uh, through which a provider could, uh, within within a day, uh, get access and be able to start sending consults to any of the 40 or so different specialties that we offer. 
I'm sure like the rest of the country, uh, you're trying to figure out how to do telehealth in a way that supports all the clinics and all the clinicians that you support. Um, what's that been like? Well, it's been incredibly disorienting and challenging, I think, in that uh, three or four weeks ago, we were providing you know, thousands of visits per day in clinics and uh, schools and homeless shelters across the state. Uh, and almost overnight, we've had to pivot and figure out a way to uh, to a greater or lesser extent, keep those patients out of the clinic and provide them the care that they need in different settings. Uh, I have to say our state, Connecticut, has been extremely proactive in implementing a series of changes to the typical Medicaid reimbursement uh, laws that are allowing us to do that, to provide telephonic and telehealth care, but it has been uh, an extremely rapid change and uh, one that has imposed an enormous amount of uh, administrative challenges on our entire company and required a lot of flexibility and creativity to get it up quickly. Yeah, I'm, I'm working from home today, as, as many Americans are, and my son actually had a doctor's appointment this morning, and we did it by video, and it was fantastic. It just saved the drive. I didn't have to look for parking or wait in the waiting room. Um, it actually happened right on time. There was no waiting in the waiting room. Um, but I also know from my work at Allidade that the physician is probably not getting paid as much for that, even though it gave us as good or, or better service. Um, but it was impressive how well they had put it together in such a short period of time. What, what have you been hearing about some of the logistical challenges? You know, I think, as you sort of described, the basic logistics are not complicated. If you think about it, you know, my kids communicate um, by FaceTime or other communication mechanisms with their friends pretty much every day. And the technology that we're talking about is not that is not very dissimilar to what they're doing. We need a video conference platform to be able to see each other and talk face to face. Uh, in this case, in a matter that's HIPAA compliant, uh, and we need to have access to our electronic health records. So I think the technical and logistical challenges uh, are easily overcomable. Patients need to be able to you know download uh, a video conference uh, tool like we use Zoom. Uh, and the primary care providers need to have the bandwidth and the capability to deliver that care you know, in their homes or, or from a uh, tele, you know, fr from their clinic. I think that the challenges are more related to the payment system, as you as you alluded to. Uh, previous to the coronavirus, these types of encounters uh, in many places were not reimbursable at all. Uh, and uh, with the changes in our state, at least, it's allowed us now to rapidly scale up and do this. And my hope is that you know, after all this is over, if there is any silver lining, uh, it is that people like yourself will have that experience and kind of be demanding it and saying, why is it that we can't do this? This is simple technology. Uh, it works. It's more efficient. It's more convenient. I want this uh, because I think, you know, technically there's no reason that we can't do it. It's more the system that we've built around it and the, the payment system and all of that that I think are where the challenges and limitations previously have existed. Have there been any limitations unique to the CHCs in trying to do telehealth? No, well, I think the limitations in CHCs are probably, well, in most cases, similar. Uh, you know, perhaps in addition to that, you have challenges with patients who may have a lower level of technical literacy, may not have access to smartphone technology or computers. Uh, so there's certainly those challenges. Uh, for our colleagues working in extremely rural or frontier locations, uh, bandwidth can also sometimes be a problem. Uh, but above and beyond that, I think the, uh, the the payment system that FQHCs operate under, uh, the prospective payment rules that uh, reimburse us differently and really are dependent uh, largely on state uh, state rules and regulations and such, 
I think are more where the bigger challenges lie. And interestingly, prior to the coronavirus uh, outbreak, uh, California had uh, really led the way in implementing some new, much more, uh, uh, I think, uh, supportive legislation around the use of telehealth and FQHCs. And uh, we're hoping that uh, those types of uh, changes now follow, uh, follow in other states as well. Medicare was in- impressively quick to change the regulations around telehealth so that providers could now get reimbursed for it. But when it comes to Medicaid, of course, it is up to the states. Um, do you know how many states have come around to allowing it? I don't know the exact number, but it is, well, it was very few. Uh, to answer the question now, you, I mean, we really are having to do surveillance day, day to day uh, because um, Connecticut just passed new, new rules. We're watching um, other states like Colorado, but it really is a day-to-day thing at this point. So at this point, people treating Medicaid patients in many places still can't get reimbursed for doing telehealth. That's correct. When we've been having calls with our practices here at Allidade in the past week, one of the most common refrains, understandably, is can you help us get PPE or personal protective equipment? And I would imagine you're hearing that just as much from the CHCs, which aren't likely to have a lot of that stuff in stock either. Yeah, we certainly are. And, you know, back to the project echo sessions that, that we're running and the types of questions that we're getting in some cases are, are almost heartbreaking. We hear from providers that are working in homeless shelters asking, you know, how should, should I wear a mask all day long when I only have, you know, two left? Uh, how can I in, implement an infection control process uh, in, in a homeless shelter environment where I don't even have, you know, my own private room to see patients? We're getting a lot of questions about sort of a uh, uh, what are the alternatives? If I don't have an N95 mask, you know, is it better to use uh, something made of cloth and those types of things? And so there's no question that what you read in the news uh, is really playing out on the front lines. And, you know, we worry particularly about safety net practices, uh, not only uh, because of the vital service that they provide, but they are serving that population of patients that is, for many reasons, much more likely to be affected uh, by uh, the coronavirus through the predominance of, uh, of chronic illness, uh, as well as uh, likelihood of working in lower wage positions where you are more likely to come into contact with the public, less likely to have tele- telework options and things like that. So uh, these FQHCs and other safety net practices really are the backbone of the public health response uh, that I think is going to be even more critical as, the, as this uh, epidemic progresses. Yeah, I was just speaking to a provider today in Mississippi whose patients had begun sewing them masks. Um, it's just it's just heartrending. Yeah, I know there's a lot of discussion in Washington about finding ways of uh, rapidly ramping up the production uh, of uh, personal protective equipment and such. And I certainly hope that they're able to do that quickly because it really is becoming a desperate need. So as we're in a point right now uh, with coronavirus where there are a lot of people who need a lot of help. Do you think there's anything unique about a, a project like ConfirmMed that can be beneficial? Yeah, I think e-consults, if anything, are going to be more important than ever uh, because of their scalability. Before there was coronavirus, we had a limitation uh, in that there weren't enough specialists available uh, to treat the patients who needed referrals to specialty care. And that was particularly acute in rural settings. But equally problematic in many uh, inner city settings uh, and other uh, medically underserved populations. Uh, And I think as we rapidly pivot to provide telehealth services, uh, the number of specialists available to help uh, is not going to increase. 
Uh, and likely, uh, this will only exacerbate the problem. And I think the beauty of an e-consult platform as your first pass prior to sending people for a face-to-face visit is that you can call out those consults that can be addressed with a scalable solution like an e-consult and then devote those scarce resources for what, for direct-to-patient uh, communication for only those that really need it. Uh, so what we've been really trying to do is, is uh, I think, place e-consults in the telehealth ecosystem as that first pass. Uh, specialist uh, receives electronic information, reviews the case, uh, gives recommendation and guidance. If they feel that a face-to-face isn't needed, they give you uh, recommendations on what to do. If they feel that a face-to-face visit is needed, they suggest some things that you ought to do in advance of sending them in so that when they do go for that face-to-face visit, uh, the specialist has all of the tests and all of the information that they need to make maxim- take maximum advantage of that face-to-face encounter. I'm Dr. Darren Anderson of the Weizmann Institute, the Community Health Centers Incorporated, and ConfirmEd. Thank you very much for speaking. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.